Um, last time we were together, we were, we were just starting into verses um, 3 through 5. Blessed, and I'll, I'll get our translations here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, excuse me, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we, we were talking about this, and we talked about the word blessed, and, uh, or blessed, depending on how it's functioning in the sentence, it's, it's pronounced a different way. And we talked about where it's, where it's found in Scripture. And as we walked through all of the places where it was found, does anybody remember in, in this form, in this adjectival form, does anybody remember um, the uniqueness of how this word was used? Sophia. That's right. Very good. It was only used to describe God, that God is the one who is blessed, that He is the blessed, the blessed one. And it's interesting that we, we find this word in its, in its descriptive form, only referring to God. And, and we, we had these various verses that told us that. And um, I think we talked about this just briefly, but uh, maybe not. So I'm going to back up for just a second to our diagram. And uh, the diagram that we have here of... That's not the diagram we want, I don't think so. This. Oh, okay, that's right. We hadn't really gotten into this. Feeling some deja vu. I haven't gone through all this, right? I don't think so. Um, we're just still down here. So this is our kind of our our diagram of the the beginning of this verse that God and Father is blessed or the blessed. And it says, um, He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord or of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find here is that God and Father are, they share an article. And when we see this in the Greek, and, and this gets a little technical, but what we know is that whatever, based upon a certain set of rules, if, if the, the two words... Sharing an article, so it, it would go article and then a substantive and then a, a, a chi or an and and then another substantive. Uh, in, in certain situations, when we see this, we know that the two substantives are talking about the exact same person. And as we translate it into English, that makes sense. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The English translation makes it clear that they're the same person. But this is an important thing for a theologian to recognize when, when looking into the text. And it's called, what, what, um, in, in Greek it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. Effectively, uh, it says the Greek demonstrates that God and Father are being equated with one another so that they are speaking of the same person. Now, this is not very significant when we consider God and Father because everybody knows that God is the Father. But there are a couple of places in Scripture where God and Jesus 
are put into the same construction. And this is important because you have groups like the Jehovah's Witness who don't believe that God, that Jesus is Jehovah. And when we see places where Jehovah is equated with Jesus and we find that it matches this rule, there is a further assurance in our hearts and a further reason for us to be able to dismiss any argument that the Jehovah's Witness or other groups like them would try to give in this regard. So consider some of these other verses where we see this construction. Titus 2 verse 13 there at the top. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. God and Jesus Christ here are in this construction, which means the great God, Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, is Jesus Christ. And that's a big one. That's a very important one. They're not, th- this verse is not speaking of two different entities, God and our Savior as two, speaking of God and our Savior as one. Now, again, as we use this argument, if you read it in the English, it's not, someone could just say, well, it's speaking of two different people. It, this is more for your benefit to know that when, when you look at that verse, the Greek behind that verse validates that it's speaking of the same person, not two different people. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of, again, of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. It's the same construction. God and Jesus Christ are equated as one person. This is not supposed to be God and Jesus, but God and Jesus. 2 Peter 1.11 For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into every, uh, everlasting, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There we see Lord and Savior, which is far more common. And that one doesn't throw us off too much, right? Jesus is regularly called the Lord. And that one wouldn't necessarily factor into an argument um, for the deity of Christ or the Trinity. But we also see it in 2 Peter 2.20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. But let me give you this, and this might help you if you're arguing this case with someone. We see God and our Savior Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1.1. Just 10 verses later, we see Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if somebody were going to argue that God and Savior were two different people, then they'd be arguing that Lord and Savior are two different people as well, right? Grammatically, linguistically, that would make sense. But you can prove very easily that Jesus is Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is everywhere in the, in the, in the New Testament, right? So if Jesus is Lord and Lord is being equated with Jesus Christ in that same construction in 2 Peter 1, 11, then in 2 Peter 1, 1, why wouldn't God be equated with Savior Jesus Christ? Does that make sense? Questions on that? No. Good. Glad you don't have any questions, Cars. 
And so this can help you. It can be a, one of those means by which when somebody questions the deity of Christ, you can go to particularly Second Peter chapter 1 and you can show these things, the equating of God with Jesus and then Lord with Jesus. And you can show any of the many passages of Scripture where Lord where we see the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that Jesus is Lord, equating Lord with Jesus, equating God with Jesus in the same passage quite clearly. And then you can also know, and you could say, and for your benefit, my pastor says, the Greek backs this up just fine. And you, he could, you could tell him, look it up, and Greek scholars for the past 150 years have known this. Um, the Granville Sharp Rule was made in the 1800s, was recognized in the 1800s. Um, remember, with ancient Greek, we are black, bo- black box reverse engineering it. Um, we are taking a language and we're trying to learn its rules from how it's used. We're not knowing the language and then using it. We're trying to figure out how the language was used by example, and by deconstructing it. So because of that, we're still learning things about it. Okay, so other examples exist, but the rule is consistent all, throughout all known Koine Greek. There's never been an example where that rule has not applied. Um, so we can be pretty comfortable with it. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten. And we're going to focus now on that idea of which hath begotten. And He hath begotten according to His abundant mercy. When we're looking at the diagram, um, we're right up here now. Sorry about that. So, um, it's a participle, the one who has begotten us again. And that should be again begotten, not just begotten. This should be again begotten. We see begotten in the second half of that word, ana, being a preposition that means again. So, he has again begotten us. And I'll have to change that um, when I get home because that definitely needs to be there. And you'll notice that this is all being equated. This is the sentence, and then everything else in the next several verses is just what, what we call an appositive. It's, it's talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has begotten us again, according to and unto and all of that. Um, Okay, so let's talk about this um, phrase, which hath begotten. Can somebody read to me that Greek? Audrey? Very good. And then can somebody read me the lexical form of the word? Sophia? Anagenao, I would say. So just... Kind of put the accent over the epsilon instead of the alpha there. Anaginao. Uh, and this means to beget again or to produce again. Now, as we talk about the word itself, it's a participle. A participle is a verbal adjective, modifies a substantive, relates itself to the verb in a sentence. We find it in the aorist. We, the aorist tense indicates an undefined past action. So it's not really speaking of how long or, or anything. It's just something that happened in the past. Um, typically in the past, there's a few exceptions, but typically an undefined past action, a summary of past action, not speaking of how long it happened or anything like that. 
It's in the active voice, which means the subject is doing the begetting again. Who's the subject? Who's the one who has begotten us again? Who has begotten us again? Mason. That's right. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who hath begotten us again. So, so that's why it's in the active because God is the one that's doing the again begetting. Aristens imp- implies that Peter sees this begetting as something that has already happened at some point in the past. And the word begotten, now we've talked about this word before as it relates to Jesus Christ. It's a little bit broader than the idea of born. It can mean born, but it can also mean created and not even created physically, but created unto something or designated unto something, which is why Jesus Christ is called the only begotten Son of God, right? It's not that He was created by God. He is an uncreated being because He is God. He always was, and we know that. And yet, at the moment that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the Bible tells us, He was begotten as a Son of God. He was he was um, elevated to that position of honor due to his resurrection. And so that was his moment of being begotten by God. And it had nothing to do with him being physically created or even spiritually created. It had everything to do with him being elevated to the position that he earned through his resurrection. Um, However... This concept of being begotten again, as we see it here, is synonymous with being born again. And when you read that begotten again, now begotten, again, we said it has a a broader context, but when it's speaking of us being begotten again by God, there's no question about what's being said here. It's talking about being born again. And this is neat, because outside of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, you don't see that phrase born again, again. But Peter here does speak of being begotten again. And it's the same idea of being born again. We see born again used uh, in John 3, 3, John 3, 7, and then Peter will use it here in, in 1 John 1, 23. So Peter uses it and, and John uses it. And that's it in Scripture as far as born again, begotten again. Only used in this context. And so we see Jesus use it twice. Peter used it twice. Peter calls it born again once, begotten again once. Jesus uses it both times, calling it being born again. And so Peter is attributing a Christian second birth directly to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying there. He is the one who hath begotten us again. And he says again, and then he's got another one of these chains. We already saw one of these chains, right? Where um, we saw it in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's this chain of purpose and result and means. And, and we're going to see another one of those chains. But Sarah, you have a question? Uh, um, the question is, when are we born again? Because we look at Jesus and Jesus is born again at His resurrection. 
And we know that so many elements of our salvation are yet future, and we'll even see that in verses 6, 7, and 8. Peter's going to reference multiple times that our salvation is yet to come. So when are we born again? Um, I believe the Scriptures bear out that we're born again at the moment of salvation, at the moment that we accept Christ. Because we talk about the baptism of the Spirit, and then we recognize 2 Corinthians 5.17. Karis, can you tell me what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says? Very good. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What we understand from that is that at the moment that we do place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, of course, indwells us. We receive the baptism of the Spirit and we become a new creation. And so at that new creation point would be that point of being born again. And we're born into a new creation. So that the nature... The, the, the Christ nature is indeed born into us the moment we place our faith in Christ. So I would say that that as a whole, as we see it in Scripture, we only see the phrase born again again used in John 3 and in 1 Peter 1. And because we see it so rarely, we don't have a lot of context. But I don't know, unless 1 Peter one twenty three speaks to... Um, Yeah, we'll have to look when we get there because it looks like almost a a continual idea in verse 23. So we'll have to get there and diagram it and see how being born again is used as to whether it's likely hearkening back or if Peter's almost describing it as a continual process of that cleansing. Uh, I, I wouldn't think so though. I would think that he'd be speaking of perhaps even a past with continuing results type idea that the perfect reflects. So we'll have to look at that when we get there. But as a whole, that would be, that would be my, my thought. Does anybody have another thought or a question on that? When, when are we actually born again? Um, as, we look at, as we look at this word itself, it's in an aorist which would generally imply a past action. So that gives us a, as Peter says here, he hath begotten us again. So that would also lend itself to the idea that it was something that happened and was completed in the past. And so we've got another chain here. Good question. We've got another chain and Peter's going to do this in, he did it in verse 2. He's going to do it here. Uh, in verses 3 through 5. He's going to do it again in verses 6 through 8. He's going to describe something and then he's going to give us so many different ways to look at it. And and he's going to talk about why it's happening and how it's happening and unto what purpose it's happening. He's he's being very thorough here, even though he hasn't actually used a verb yet. Um, And so he's begotten us according to... Let me zoom that in a little bit for you. He's begotten us according to the, mer- the abundant mercy or His abundant mercy, unto a lively hope by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance 
that's incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Um, and we're seeing all of these different clauses work together and so we'll talk about them individually. Um, so we are begotten again and the first one is according to His abundant mercy. The syntax possibilities here, the, the way it's used in the sentence, there's really two possibilities. It could be speaking of the measure of God's mercy or it could that we're born again and as we're born again it reveals to us the extent of God's mercy. And remember how we were talking on Sunday night in Galatians about the child heir and the child slave? And Peter's speaking to a Jewish audience here, but the idea that as you think about the child heir and the child slave, and Israel had been given the promises and had been promised the adoption, which was yet to come, but then the Gentile world was kind of that equating to that slave, and yet we see the slave being adopted into sonship in the same way the child heir would be adopted into sonship. And when we recognize that, um, we see just how merciful God is. He is giving this blessing to those who have absolutely no right. There's not one person on this earth, save when the Lord Jesus walked the earth, that has any right to anything that we've been given by God. Uh, but by, by all justice, by all rights, we should all be on our way to hell irrevocably. That is what we deserve. That is the only right that we retain. And yet God has given us salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, and it is absolutely a gift. Not only is it unconditional, not only is it, is it um, without, without any strings attached, but it is without any merit. And so that's the idea, according to His abundant mercy. And the other thing that, that it could be is reference. And this one makes perhaps a little more sense with reference to or being born again is the reference within which or with which we understand God's mercy. We understand God's mercy as we see our salvation. It gives us the extent or the framework within which God's mercy should be mercy um, can be known. So that's, that's the first thing. We have be, be, been begotten again. We've been born again according to His mercy. So God's mercy is the framework within which we receive this new life in Christ. Unto a lively hope. And this is directional. So let's talk about this word here. Can anyone read me that word? Sophia? Close. What's that first letter there? Audrey? Uh, no, it's not like Zai. It's a similar sound, though. It's a zeta. It's a zeta. So, what would this be then? Zosan, right? Zosan. Yep. And uh, then here's the lexical form. Can someone read that one for me? Audrey? Zeo, zao. Zeo would be more correct as to how we've learned the letter. Zao is how I say it in my mind because of how I learned it. Uh, and it means to live. Zao is the word to live. And this is uh, very regularly the word that we find when we're talking about life, eternal life. Um, 
really any life, uh, as we talk about it, live is one of the, the most common words. And here we, again, have a participle, which means it's, a, it's got verbal qualities, but it's also got substantive qualities. It modifies the substantive. It relates itself to the verb in the sentence. And we're in the present tense this time, so this is speaking of an ongoing idea in the active voice, a lively hope. This is a living hope. What an interesting way to describe it. What, what do you think that means? When, when Peter says that we have been born again according to the abundant mercy of God unto a living hope or a lively hope, what, what, what would that mean? Now, this does not mean a hope of life. The fact that it's an adjective means it can't mean the hope of life, which we might want to think. It means a lively hope or a living hope. What, what, how would you interpret that? What would that mean, a living hope? Okay. Okay. Um, The idea of of Christ being living. We are born again according to the mercy, the abundant mercy of God unto Christ would be the idea then. Um, Sophia? Okay. Ongoing. All right. I like that better. I think the Christ thing would probably not work with unto very well. Uh, being born again unto Christ. My, we, 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 could, we could probably work it out theologically. I don't think that that's what it's saying, but I like your second idea. That, that, I think, goes a little more in the direction of what we're talking about here. Any other thoughts on lively hope, Sarah? Okay, and so if, if uh, I, I would agree with you. So if we think of it that way, a lively hope being something that's ongoing, continual, active, what is the, what's that saying about our, our uh, the, about the, the, the place where our being born again puts us? Walking with Christ, okay. What else? Anything else? Let's talk. Let's continue through the context, and maybe we'll we'll find some some more context for that. So, the results of God's mercy mercy and our new birth is a living hope. Biblical. Hope is often seen, seen in terms of a living hope. Now, we define hope this way at Legacy Baptist Church. A joyful and earnest expectation. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. So when we're talking about a hope, we're not talking about something that... It's not a fearful wondering or longing. It's not... I, I, I would, you know, I, I've given the example for years that you know during the NFL season, you... You watch football and you hope your team wins. 
and you hope your team makes it to the Super Bowl, and only two of 32 teams are going to make it to the Super Bowl, and only one of those 32 teams is going to win the Super Bowl, you hope your team will win, but that hope is more of a, a longing than it is a confidence, right? Now, if your team is very good, you might have more confidence than other, but, but it's not, the, the odds are very much against you. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it talks about something that you fully expect to come to pass. When we sing that song, My hope is in the Lord who gave Himself for me. That hope is not, wow, I really hope God bails me out of this. It's, I have every expectation that God will do everything He said He will do, and so I can live in confidence. My hope is lively. It is active. It is driving me. You said it, it causes us to want to follow Christ. Our hope in that which will come drives us. It is, it is active in our lives. It is burning in our lives. It's not just something that we, it's not just the book that we crack open, blow off the dust and say, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven one day every now and again. It is everything that we are. It is everything that we understand. It's how we perceive life. It's how we perceive our purpose. It's how we perceive our activities. It's how we treat people. It's how we raise our children. It's how we work. It's how we play. It's how we shop. It's how we name it. It's how we do it. We do it within the context of the fact that God has saved us, redeemed us from a world of sin, and that we will one day rule and reign with Him in Christ, that we are adopted, that we're children of royalty, that we're children of the King, and if we're children of the King, then we should act like it as we merge in Sunday night again, right? So the idea of a living hope is that of an expectation that is very much alive. And in this case, the hope itself will find is eternal life. It's perhaps somewhat of a play on words here that he used the word life, to talk about our hope as a living hope unto life, right? So maybe a little bit of a play on words, but it's clearly descriptive here, not identifying um, the hope. So we are now fo follow his train of thought here. We are, we are begotten again or we're born again according to his abundant mercy unto a lively hope. So the framework is mercy. The the uh, place that it puts us is hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is the means. This is the means by which we, have, we are able to be born again. This is the means by which we receive the lively hope. And it's the resurrection of the dead. Now, we, we often talk about the death of Jesus Christ. And the death of Jesus Christ is what secured for us our justification and our redemption. But the death of Jesus Christ without the resurrection of Jesus Christ is nothing. It is empty. And we know this. Does anybody know the passage of Scripture that proves to us that Jesus' death without His resurrection is worthless? It's 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is that great passage on the resurrection where Jesus Christ says, where Paul says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he is dead in vain and we are yet in our sins. Literally, Paul said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still 
dead in our sins. We, we can't rise. We can't come to life if Christ doesn't first come to life. And that's the passage that tells us that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection and that because Jesus rose, we will know that we will rise too. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if, if there's no hope in Jesus' resurrection, then there's no hope for our resurrection. If there's no hope for life in Christ, for, if, if there's no hope that Christ is alive, then there's no hope that we will be alive. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the means by which the, the resurrection that we have, the lively hope that we have, is secured. So we're born again unto this hope, and this hope is established by the resurrection of the dead, and that hope is our own resurrection. Does that make sense? And Peter chains one more, one more uh, preposition together here. Two, unto an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. This is the end result. This is the lively hope. So we're born again unto a hope. And that hope is secured by the resurrection of the dead. And that hope points toward this, an inheritance. And we talked again about the adoption, right? When does the adoption happen? We talked about it Sunday night. We've been talking about it in Galatians. When does the adoption actually happen in the Christian life? According to Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, I think it was. I can't hear her. No. That's when we're called adopted, but when are we... That's right, at the redemption of our body, right? That we, that, that are, that we ache and groan within ourselves for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies, Paul said in Romans chapter 8. And so it's at that redemption of our body that is the moment where we are practically adopted. Now, positionally, we're already there. But practically speaking, we're waiting for our inheritance. It hasn't come to us yet. We've got the thing that says it's yours, but we're waiting for it, and that's at the resurrection, uh, the, the redemption of our bodies. And so that's the end game. That's the end result. That's the inheritance. And the immediate result of being born again is the lively hope of eternal life. The end result of being born again is eternal life. And this eternal life is, is described in four ways. First, incorruptible. Can anybody read me that Greek word there? Bell? Close. What's that second letter there? No, nope, it's not psi. That's where I thought I heard you say it, psi. It's a phi, so it's the ph. So it'd be af, afthartas, afthartas. Um, 
How about this word? Audrey? Amiantas. Yes, amiantas. And the next one? Sophia? Sorry? Amarantas. Very good. And then the, the bottom one there? Audrey? Uh, yeah, and adding a little bit extra on the accent, tereo. Um, tereo there. And so these are the four words used to describe the inheritance that we have coming to us. And the first is incorruptible, literally undecaying. It doesn't break down. It doesn't wear down. It's, it's not something that, that um, goes away. Now, as you think of an undecaying or incorrupting inheritance or promise, are there any other verses that, just, that, that you can think of that would relate to this idea? of an incorruptible or undecaying promise? I think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? So Jesus is saying, put your heart, put your treasure, treasure that which is incorruptible. And if that's what you treasure, that's where your heart will go. Now think about this. You are born again and you have a hope. And this hope is intended to be a lively hope, a living hope. And the reason why that hope remains lively is because you are placing your love on that which you know cannot be corrupted, on that which you know cannot decay. I've got a house. It's going to fall down. I've got cars. They're going to break down. I've got electronics. They are going to... um, they were obsolete when I got them. They're going to, they're going to be, I mean, the day you buy an electronic, it's already obsolete, right? Even if you just bought it, it's the first day out. Uh, it's already obsolete. Things, things are, are, they decay, they wear out, and they go obsolete so quickly. And if that is everything that you've got, I mean, if what you've got is clothes, if what you've got are things, if what you have is beauty, all of that stuff's going to go away. And it just ends up being temporary. But if you could choose between buying a car that was going to break down in 10 years, 150,000 miles, or buy a car that would never break down and would last forever, which would you pursue? I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. You pursue the one that will last forever. It's the same with everything, right? If you, can, if you can choose something that would last forever against something that will break down, you choose the thing that would last forever. And yet we as Christians, uh, we, we, we don't always do that, do we? We don't always choose to go. We know that we have this, this inheritance. And as we think about what Jesus says, He says you, you can lay up the incorruptible or, or you can pursue the corruptible. 
And we ought to be pursuing the incorruptible. We ought to be pursuing that which, which cannot fade away. Sophia. Mm-hmm. The question, when we get our new bodies, why will we still have scars? I don't think we will. I think Jesus will be the only one in all of eternity that has scars. Um, personally. Now, that being said, um, there's nothing that guarantees we'll even necessarily look like ourselves. We don't know what our new bodies will look like. Um, so, yes, there's nothing scripturally that implies that we will have scars necessarily we know um we know that jesus did so it's possible that we would but there's also something to be said for the fact that god gave jesus's resurrected body the marks of his redemption because for all of eternity the marks of jesus's redemption will be on his resurrected body now will our and and to, to say to say that we would have we would carry over our scars would be a difficult one. This was actually something that um, we remember when, when we were talking about end times. It was probably better than a year ago now, or almost a year ago, and we were talking about uh, getting a resurrected body and the rapture and the fact that um, it's not going to be the same body. That that there was a time in theology where they said you can't you you mustn't get cremated, and the reason why they didn't want the body cremated is because they wanted that body to be able to be resurrected. And if you cremated it, then you couldn't be resurrected. So in certain denominations and in certain theological circles, they said if you burn the body, then, then it is not a candidate for the resurrection anymore. And that's taking the, the idea of a resurrected body too literally. The, the fact that it is actually our body. And we, we, we see some hints. You know, graves bursting forth when Jesus um, rose from the dead, right? And uh, so we see some hints that say, well, maybe, you know, maybe graves will burst forth. Maybe, maybe actual, you know, whatever's left of bodies or whatever will come out of the ground. But, but none of that's necessary because the new bodies won't necessarily be the stuff of the old body. And that's what we learned in, in 1 Corinthians 15, that the new body is entirely spiritual. That it, it, It's not that it doesn't have a physical entity to it, but it's not about that. It's not about what we are now. And what, what a good thing, because I mean, if you get beheaded, right, then, then you, you get to have your resurrected body. I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know how it would work, right? Or if, you, if, you, if, if, if you're going to carry around your scars, then why wouldn't you also carry around your, your missing pieces? You know, it, 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 it doesn't follow. It, it makes sense with Christ, though, because Christ is bearing the wounds of, his redem of our redemption, so he's going to be the king on his throne with the nail scars. He's going to be the king on his throne with the hole in his side. And that, that's, that's significant. Will we have our scars? I don't think so. Could we? I suppose it's possible. But, um, but yeah, it would be... A, to show Thomas. Yeah. Well, Exactly. And, of course, the Lord knew that. Um, so his scars were necessary, if, no, if for no one else, then for Thomas, to prove this is me. This is indeed me. Um, 
And again, I think as an indelible record of his wounds that he bore on our behalf. And how ironic, can we use the word ironic? Will that be that Jesus, the only man who has never sinned, will bear scars for the rest of eternity? And we, who have done all manner of sin, presumably will bear no scars in eternity. That, that's an interesting thought as well. Sarah? Yes. Yes, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Um, it, th- there's there's reasons why we could understand Jesus bearing, continuing to bear the scars. Um, there's really no reason why God would ask us to bear scars, and that should be in many ways. And it is particularly for for disabled or hurt or amputees or whatnot, it is a part of the living hope that, that there will be a resurrected body where they can walk and where they can run and where they can jump and where they can do whatever the Lord will allow us to do for eternity. Um, now, that being said, I think that though there is a great hope in that, um, there's also a little bit of the understanding that there will be far more important things in heaven than being able to run and jump and swim as well. And that particularly being the glory of the Lord, um, that will, will shine around us. Good. Other thoughts or questions? Hope. Yes. Yes, and, and um, in the First Corinthians message, you know, we mentioned that, that um, it, is, it, is not just, it is not just an upgraded body. We're, we're not just getting upgraded components. We're getting a new body. It is something entirely new. It is sown carnal, Paul says. It is reaped spiritual. We won't need lungs because we won't need to process oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide, there's, there will be no purpose for that. Our bodies are fitted for this earth. Our bodies are fitted for this existence. And there will be no purpose for certain elements of what, how our body functions in a spiritual realm, in a place where there is no sin, in a place where there is no curse. Things will be different. And so, because we will not be on this earth there will be a new existence. There will also be a new body. And it, it, w- will we look the same? Well, Jesus did. They, they were able to recognize him. And um, they were able to see his scars. However, Jesus did walk with the men on the road to Emmaus. And they did not see him until he chose to allow them to, right? They didn't recognize him. And they said, should we not have known? Well, did our hearts burn within us? 
that same token, when Jesus was on the shore and they were and Peter and, and the disciples were fishing, it was John that said, "That's the Lord," and then they all went to him. But it, and I don't know how far away they were or, or how John recognized him and the other ones didn't. But for some reason, the other disciples didn't actually seem to recognize who this guy was that was calling out to them until John said, that's Jesus. And so why is it that they didn't recognize him right away? Is it just that the Lord spiritually blinded their eyes? Or maybe he did look differently. He still had his nail scars, but maybe, I don't know. I don't, we, we, we could play the assumption game, but um, either way, we're, we're not going to just get upgraded bodies. We're getting new, new bodies created for a new existence. What will that mean? I don't know. Maybe it means we get to fly. Maybe it means we, we, we get to, I don't know. I don't know. New Jerusalem is going to be stacked 12 levels tall, so maybe it would be nice if he could let us fly. Be a lot easier to get around. No pain, right? We may not even need nerves. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. You, you, uh, any other thoughts or questions? So it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, unsoiled, it's pure. The inheritance is pure, it's not defiled. Um, when you think about the, an inheritance, um, that inheritance is, can, can be marred. Uh, a physical inheritance can be marred. It can be soiled. It can be ruined. It can be taken. But this is one that is pure, undefiled, unfading, perpetual. It doesn't go away. And it's reserved. Literally, that word means guarded or kept or maintained in heaven for you. It's got your name on it. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That word mansions there doesn't mean a big, humongous house with lots of drafts and, and uh, more rooms than you could know what to do with. It, the word mansion there simply means a room adjoined to the family's villa, as it were. You each get a room in the Father's house. You know, there was a time where I would go, as a matter of fact, still, when I, go, when I return to Colorado to my, my, my parents' house, there is Jamin's room. Now, that room is not so much mine anymore. It's been repurposed on several occasions for several reasons since I don't live there anymore, but it's still called Jamin's room. Then there's Kristen's room and there's Catherine's room, my two sisters, because they, we, we were each uh, blessed to be able to have our own room. And, and so there were, and, and we, we didn't, you know, swap rooms or anything growing up. So we had a room. And as we think about that, um, you, you could say it this way, that, that there was a room that was reserved for me. That was my room when I got home from college. My room was still in place. It was reserved for me. That's the idea, that there's a place for you. There's an inheritance for you. It's got your name on it. The pile of gold, silver, precious stones has a little sign on it that says Mason has a little sign on it that says Sophia, and it's yours, and then you've got your room that is adjoining the palace of the Lord. You've got a place there. It is incorruptible, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it's reserved for you. And the question is, what is this inheritance? 
And we'll have to answer that question next time.